do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Brazil. I do. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I Hello, this is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I appreciate you taking the time to spend with me as I have another authentic conversation with a player and character in the data center industry. Hopefully you were able to download some thoughts, ideas, and knowledge that will add value to your career and your life. Note that this podcast is a labor of love for me, unsupported by advertisers so that I am able to have an uninterrupted conversation free from distractions for you or commercial obligations for me. As such, I do have one request, and that is simply that you share this podcast far and wide with your peers and throw a hashtag I love data centers if you can while sharing on social media. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. Welcome, everybody, to yet another episode of I Love Data Centers podcast. This is Sean Terrio. I have with me here Jeff Wabick, who is the Chief Strategy and Connectivity Officer at DC Blocks. We're going to have an interesting conversation. Jeff has decades of experience working in and around the infrastructure space and helping to set the strategy and growth of DC Blocks, which is a relatively newcomer to the data center industry over the past few years. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure to be here. Did you just call me old? I think you just called me old. <laughs> I'm relatively old too, man. I just turned 40 a couple of weeks ago. So, Yeah, Sean, I've got socks older than that, so we're okay. <laughs> All right. So where, just to set the stage and so people can conceptualize, where, where are you now? Where are you living now and where are you physically now? Uh, good question. So um, I grew up in, in Minnesota. I spent most of my life living there. You know, industry always called for me to travel extensively. So I think I've been to every continent a few times, except Antarctica, maybe. Um, but Minnesota was always home base. And then uh, when DC blocks you know, appeared on my, uh, on my radar a handful of years ago, you know, a really exciting, interesting thing to do. So um, over time, moved myself to Atlanta, uh, which, is, which is home now. And that was an interesting change to move from the north to the south. But Atlanta is home, I guess, uh, although I still have a, uh, a lake house in Wisconsin that I built about 15 years ago. Uh, and I'm sitting in the lake house right now, staring out through the trees at the lake, and it's beautiful. And, you know, it's all uh, about connectivity and, and being able to be virtual these days that enables me to be here. So, yeah, I love it. I, uh, I spent I got invited by a friend who got uh, a beach rental out here in North Carolina at uh, in Emerald Isle, which is a, a beautiful part of the coast. Nice. Went to visit him and I was sitting on the beach most of I think it was Tuesday morning on phone calls thinking to myself, I, I would love if I could just make this my permanent office. So, have you tried have you tried kite surfing in the Outer Banks? Uh, I have not yet. However, I've been uh, to the different areas and the the main kite surf shop and like compound that they've built out out there. It's pretty pretty awesome. It actually reminds me of the California coast and the Northern California coast where I spent many many years, uh, and they did a good job of basically bringing that beach vibe and the Hawaiian Cali vibe into into that area. Have you yeah, been there? Uh, to the Outer Banks, yeah. Actually, I think it's probably, where was I? Just about 15 years ago. I don't remember where I was. I think I was in Toronto, and I, I was you know, walking down by the water on, on the lake. And you know, first time I'd ever seen kite surfers, and I said, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. 
um, you know, and ended up getting, yeah, I, I have a long and illustrious history of, of finding new and interesting things and throwing myself at them a hundred percent. Right. So I saw this, like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen and immediately raced out to understand what it was, how I could do it. And then I ended up spending some time in the Outer Banks I'm trying to remember the name of the, the kite surf shop that was there. It'll come to me later today later in this conversation, but, uh, you know, went to the Outer Banks and, you know, took a bunch of lessons and 20 minutes later, I bought all the equipment, which is still in my garage. Right. And, uh, and <laughs> my garage is filled with a lot of things that I've had dubious flirtations with over time, right? All the toys, all the gear. Uh, but kite surfing is awesome. Uh, I never quite got myself to be airborne with the whole thing more than maybe, you know, it felt like maybe I was 20 feet off the water, but it was maybe like six inches off the water. Yeah, but it was right. really cool. If you, if you get a chance to, uh, to go give that a shot, um, it, it, it is a lot of fun. You know, funny enough, I, uh, last time I got a beach house last year, I playing around with it. I got one of the smaller kites just to screw around with when I was on the sand yeah, and get yeah. used to the controls and get used to the handles and came to the conclusion that I have to get myself in far better shape than I was at that point before I would feel comfortable getting myself in the water playing around with this thing. Yeah, you know, tell you what, even even a trainer kite like that, a two or three square meter trainer kite can drag your butt down the beach. Yeah, really hard. Yep. Well, cool, man. So I'm a fellow Midwesterner as well. Grew up in Chicago, Chicagoian, and uh, you know moved out to California for a couple of years uh, for college, and then stayed out there for my vast majority of my career, and then moved to Raleigh with my family and my kids. Uh, for just a better quality of life, cost of living and lower taxes, less traffic and all the million reasons why. Um, and your move to Atlanta, was that specifically just for the job or were there other things drawing you out of the Midwest? Uh, it, it was for, it was for DC blocks, right? You know, it, it's, it's an amazing set of people and an amazing, uh, amazing. Do I call it technology? Do I call it a solution? I'm not sure, but it was just, just re really, really cool. It got me really intrigued and, and, and sparked my imagination. So you know, that was the reason for the move. But then, of course, you know, after I got to Atlanta, um, you know, it turns into the first winter in Atlanta. And you know, growing up in, in northern Minnesota, as I did, you know, it's December, and I would ask people, well, when does it turn to winter in Atlanta? And they said, oh, my God, it's winter now. And, it, and it's sort of 62 degrees, right? And everybody's got their boots in there their hats and their scarves and their, and their gloves on and I'm running around in shorts and tank top. It's like, no, this is not winter. When, when does winter yeah. really start? It's like, oh, it's going to get colder next week. So I, I think in, in my entire time in Atlanta, which is now four, you know, between four and five years, you know, I think I've seen it be below freezing um, a handful of times, which kind of freaks out people in the South and it's still kind of comedic to me. But let me just be clear. Um, I've fallen in love with the weather, with the weather down South and I'm not moving back to Minnesota anytime soon. Oh, wow. Actually. Well, let's go back. So you grew up in Minnesota um, and I, I could see just from your career and your major in college, which I also definitely want to talk about. Um, yep. But before we get to that, you know, growing up, were your parents in technology? Were they involved in tech? Like, how did you get yourself thrown yeah. into the world of, of technology? Yeah, not not even a little, not even a little. And I, I think it was yeah, more more curiosity, and and I was thinking about this this morning. Um, I remember being very young, and my uncle had you know I'm older than dirt, right? So this is back when 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 cars were not as automated as they are today. But I remember my uncle had some kind of a a luxury car, and I remember that he would come visit, and I would love to sit in the car and and play with the power windows, which were a novelty at the time, and play with the power seats, which were a novelty at the time. 
And, you know, my mother, you know, observed that and she said, oh boy, Jeff sure does like, you know, I think, I don't remember which word she used, but I think she meant Jeff likes luxury or something like that. And, you know, it didn't really, didn't really hit me at the time, but I think in retrospect, it's very clear that what intrigued me was the automation of being able to you know, push a button and have something happen that you would otherwise have to do by hand. Um, because over time, you know, I, I, I discovered um, computers and back in the day, it was sort of, you know, stone knives and bearskins, right? But um, discovered computers and, and became enamored with the notion that I could give them instructions and then they would do what I told them. So it was about the automation that really got me into it. So I didn't really have any any family stimulus for that. I just kind of followed my own course. And you know, being somewhat introverted as I am, I think it was much easier for me to to sit indoors and kind of poke around with the computer than it was to go out in the backyard and run, jump, and play. Did you start doing that in high school or prior to that? Or was that just you know, until you got I, to I college? Actually, I'm trying to think about this. It was probably the late 70s. I was, I was 12 or 13 years old. And I, actually, I, I built my first computer with a soldering iron. And, and in all admission, it was a kit computer, right? It was a company wow. called Heathkit at the time. And, you know, Heathkit offered all sorts of, you know, buy this, buy these parts and pieces and assemble them yourself and have this gadget, whatever it was going to be. And it was the early days of computing, but I actually, you know, saved up my money from mowing lawns and whatever it was and, and ordered the Heathkit kit for a computer. And it shows up in, you know, resistors and transistors and capacitors and, and printed circuit boards and all those things. And I remember spending months in the basement with a soldering iron building the computer just just to make it work and having fun with that so you know I've, I've always looked at these these challenges as let's just do this right i don't know how to build a computer i've never used a soldering iron before how hard can it be and i still have it i actually have it here at the at the lake house in wisconsin i was i opened up a closet the other day and it was sitting there i was like yep that's the jeff's museum of antique computing equipment that's pretty awesome, man. You're the first person I have interviewed. And there's a lot of people who have assembled, you know, computers from scratch, but the first one who's actually gone about having to solder a computer together from from that long ago. So you have just proved your point that you have socks that are older than me. <laughs> or I'm or I'm a complete nerd or both, right? Hey, it's it's not a bad thing. But the the fun thing, and I love this because when I do do interviews and even just talk to new people coming in the industry, they say, "Well, how did you get? In the, you know, do I need a computer major uh, major in order to come into the industry?" Uh, but I love seeing from yours that not only did you have a computer science uh, degree, but you also have a geology degree. So what what inspired those two? Uh, you know, while you were in school. Yeah, I'm not really sure about the geology thing. Um, it was just kind of, I think, I think it's science, right? Maybe it's just science and understanding how the universe works. So maybe the, the technology piece is more about automation and, and getting computers to do what I wanted them to do. But I'm, I'm still fascinated by you know, understanding the universe and physics and, and geology um, and, and, and you know, look at being able to look down at the ground and, and see a rock and say, oh, that's a piece of igneous basalt and here's where it comes from and here's how it was formed and it was 4.6 billion years, you know, whatever it was, right? So I think, I think it was mostly just about, you know, in a curiosity of, of understanding why things are what they are and being able to explain them and understand them, uh, you know, and being able to say, you know, when a child says, you know, why is the sky blue, you know, having the answer as opposed to, you know, it just is or, or, or some reason that doesn't make sense. That's great. And I think that's a common trait for a lot of the 
engineers in our industry is just a, an understanding of systems and how things operate and how things work. I think it's it's absolutely critical, right? You can't just be textbook savvy, but you have to be world worldly savvy and trying to at least deep down have that inquisitive nature about you, which I think that is what I tell people more than anything else. It's your, your major is irrelevant. It's learning how to learn and learning that there's so much to learn and that no matter how much, you know, there's always more to know. And, you know, the more, <laughs> the more I, I know, the more I realize I don't know. Right. It's, it's uh, yeah. yeah. And, and then, and then the practical application. So, so learning what you don't know, getting your hand around and then, and then a practical application. So you now I told you I'm sitting at the Lake House in Wisconsin. This was mostly motivated by an idea I had one day, which was, Hey, I want to build a house. I wonder what that's like. So, you know, went off and, and started to think about it and got some CAD software and started to do some drawings and, you know, surfed the internet and found some interesting uh, designs that other people had done and leveraged key concepts and, and kind of put it all together and, and, you know, certainly had some help um, with, with the heavy lifting, right? I'm not really interested in pouring concrete and, you know, some of the other things like that. But so there's certainly, certainly help in building the house, but it was really fun to, to kind of go through that process and, and do the hammer and nails build of the house. Um, and now, now I understand, you know, number one, how I over-engineered the thing. Um, but number two, you know, just where every nail is, where every screw is, where every wire is, where every support is, why the decision was made to put it there. So you know, technology and knowledge are all about uh, the practical application. You know, once I learn something, what do I do with it, right? You know, how do I do something fun with it and how do I put it into motion? And and that's always been the fun part for me. It's like, I, I think there's a lot of engineers who who are enamored with, with solutions, enamored with science, enamored with technology and, and enjoy it for the sake of it. But I've always enjoyed taking you know, knowledge, taking knowledge from different disciplines, merging them together, um, understanding how to create a solution with it and something, and something that, that, you know, is fun and that makes sense or is practical or is useful. You know, I won't go so far as, you know, I don't think I've ever saved any lives. Maybe I have, right? But, you know, for, for the greater good, you know, how do I, how do I put pieces together of a puzzle and then make the puzzle interesting and maybe something, something that somebody hasn't seen before? So that's always been the, the draw for me. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's been interesting to, to spread that across multiple disciplines. Um, you know, one of the things that in, in the last year, a really good friend has intrigued me with, and, he, and he's been doing this for a while. He's also, you should, you should interview him. He's kind of a, he's kind of a, an interesting personality as well. But um, you know, uh, it, it's a friend that I taught to snowboard about 20 years ago, and you know, the, the student has surpassed the teacher. But I still love to snowboard. It's one of my my favorite. It is my win, my favorite winter activity. Um, but at one point, you know, he he told me that he was designing snowboards, and I said, mm, "What does that mean? Does it mean you're creating the graphics for the top layer?" But no, in fact, you know, uh, being the the inquisitive uh, discovery based person that he is, he's actually found somebody who will take specifications for a certain type of wood, a certain type of carbon fiber, a certain type of metal, how you assemble them in the snowboard, how they cross, you know, the, do you lay the carbon fiber down in an X or do you lay the fiber, carbon fiber down um, in, in, in parallel lines on the board to increase torsional or linear rigidity of the board. And, and so, you know, that's kind of my latest thing, right? It's like, I haven't really, I haven't designed my first snowboard yet, but I'm thinking about it, right? And it's really fun to, to listen to, to John go through the, well, I tried the carbon fiber this way and it made the board behave this way and, and to solve those problems. So, you know, for me, I think, you know, although I have 
tended to focus a career around computing, technology, networking. You know, my, 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 inquis- my inquisition, is that the right word? My inquisitiveness, maybe that's the word, right? It has, has not um, just been limited to that. I also love, you know, poking around with other things and trying to solve new problems. And, and maybe, maybe I'll have a snowboarding line in a couple of years and you can interview yeah. that. We'll see. I think it's based on your track record uh, from the online stalking that I did before the, before this interview, Uh-oh. I could see that uh, you do have an entrepreneurial, you know, background to you. Right. And so I think it's just nature for, for a lot of us. I'm the same way. And it took, you know, literally my mom at one point sitting me down and say, Sean, you have like six different uh, things going on right now. Focus on one of them and narrow that laser beam onto one of them. Uh, and I think you'll find that that one will be far more effective. And that was back when I was, you know, 19, 19, 20 years old. Um, but speaking to that entrepreneurial part of you, I noticed that in Minnesota, you helped start one of the first ISPs um, back in the, in the late eighties. Can you, can you walk through that experience? Like what, what led to the, um, the buildup of that? Yeah. So, so during my undergraduate work at the university of Minnesota, um, yeah, there's this, this very early set of applications built around what we would all come to know as the internet and, you know, email was the the application. You know, FTP to be able to go and download a software package here or there. But you know, email was the application. And and so you know, think, thinking backwards to that, you know, I kind of described how I got into the technology components of my life and building computers and whatnot. You know, as I started that, even when I was much younger, um, you know, and I, I actually started to buy other people's computers and use those. I remember having Commodore sixty fours and all those things, right? Um, you know, the, the, the next component of that was about sharing, right? So when I would write some software, I would learn something new. It was fun to, uh, share that with other people somehow and connect with other people somehow on that to further the nerdiness of the whole thing. So when I was uh, doing my undergraduate work at, at Minnesota, um, you know, email was one of the applications that was supported by what would become the internet, the early phases of the internet, right? And, and, you know, quickly started to be able to connect with, with people, um, that were, you know, not in town, you know, other other places in the state, other places in the country, other places in the world, and, and suck down knowledge and and to push knowledge, and that was really really cool. And and then when I um, when I finished my undergraduate work and, and went off into industry, you know, I had every intention of going to grad school, which I ended up not doing. Um, but you know, I, I ended up landing at a company um, that had no clue that that email existed, that bulletin board systems existed, that you know, in any any of this new technology. What was was emerging, and and it, it it was painful because all of the the coolness that I had been immersed in by having access to email and having access to the internet and being able to do that was suddenly gone, and and there were no ISPs at the time. It was 1987. Um, and oh, I shouldn't say that. Maybe they were. There were none where I was, so I couldn't go to somebody and say, "Hey, I want to buy internet connectivity from you." It just wasn't a thing. So uh, there are some other like-minded folks, and we all got together. Um, the organization was called MRNet Minnesota Regional Network, and uh, we all went off and did our thing to to get some money from the National Science Foundation to pay for a blistering fast 56 kilobit circuit that would run from uh, Minneapolis off to I think it was Chicago, um, and then a Proteon, I think it was Proteon P4200 router to terminate it. Um, and that was that was the connection, right? And the idea was, you know, under the auspice of my company, the company I was working for at the time, 
you know, we would help to contribute to a pot of money that would buy a room for power and cooling to push this router and to make it all work. And, and so I sort of pushed that technology into this company. It was a huge, the company was Control Data Corporation, which, you know, kind of ceased to exist a few years later. Um, but, you know, big, huge company. And, and it was, it was interesting for me to kind of push this into the company and have people say, holy cow, what is this thing? So, you know, MRNet was something I did in my copious free time. Um, and then in order to keep the network running, they, they effectively became the ISP running. Uh, you know, we went off and, and talked to all of the colleges, universities in the state and in the region and said, hey, look at this cool new thing. Some of them had heard of them. Some of them hadn't. And then, you know, got them to become members. Right. And I think a membership fee was like five hundred dollars a year. Uh, you know, the Internet was a socialist experiment at the time. Right. There wasn't money mm-hmm. to be made doing it because there wasn't that much to do. But that was kind of the start of it. So and, on, and that, that's, but, on that, I think it's important for our listeners because many of them are, you know, my age and they don't have too much experience with what the internet looked like back then uh, and specifically what the costs involved were. Cause I can, I can only imagine that the cost, even for that small connection from Minnesota back to Chicago was relatively expensive. No. Yeah. I honestly don't remember. I honestly don't remember what the cost of the circuit was. I remember we got $50,000 $50, from the national science foundation and then bootstrapped the rest of it with, with you know, membership fees from these small colleges and universities. And there was a dozen or so of those. I really don't remember what it was. Um, but, you know, the Internet at that point was really constrained to, you know, research and education. You, know, you could yeah. get to most major universities, but the whole commercialization of the Internet had not happened. There was no going to Delta.com and buying, buying flights, right? I mean, none of that existed at all and wouldn't for, you know, at, at least in a critical mass sense for at least another eight, maybe 10 years. I think it was sort of like the mid nineties when you could actually start to really do things. Um, you know, that the first steps of being able to do your banking and be able to uh, look at the stock market and being able to think about you know, buying airline flights and things like that. So the, the other thing that fascinates me is how limited the number of companies and technologies were to manage all of that early traffic. Um, so the routers, the switches, and, and whatnot. So how how does one in a world without the internet go about even discovering what's out there and what's available, where to buy it, um, how to how to use it, how to manage it? Like, wh- what was that like? Whew, you're taking me back. This is 1987. That's 35 years ago. So you're taking yeah. me back a ways. Um, I'm not sure that I remember the nuances of it. I think you know there was there's a, a collection of us nerds, and I'll say that I say that with. Uh, it's a term of endearment when I call somebody a nerd, right? Because I'm one of them. But, um, you know, I, I think collectively with our experiences and the ties to the university, which had been connected and still continue to be connected, mm-hmm. the University of Minnesota was a big part of this, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the space that we took initially was a broom closet at the University of Minnesota. It was called the Minnesota Supercomputing Center, which was a, a branch of the University of Minnesota. So we had a broom closet. It was four by four or something like that. But there's enough people around where you could go ask the questions. And then, of course, over the course of those years at the university when I was doing undergrad, I actually worked at the University Computer Center uh, doing a bunch of stuff for them. So I think some of this was in my head. And, you know, if you got if you got money, uh, you can go off and get answers and get equipment. Right? Gotcha. But you, you eventually started migrating into that world of uh, the switching infrastructure. Well, yeah. So, so that was that was the start, right? So, when I was at uh, Control Data, I was doing software development, which was which was interesting. You know, Control Data was trying to evolve from being a, a mainframe player into a smaller system player, and they didn't quite make it, right? But you know, it was it was still the the magic of the connectivity. And I talked about that before, right? You know, now that I've you know, when I was younger, it's like yeah, I, I 
embrace technology, but the fun was in sharing and learning from others and pushing knowledge to others. So, you know, it really became intriguing for me to, to continue along the path of understanding, you know, how networks work and, and, and how, how does the internet actually work? How does the domain name system work? How do these underpinnings work? How does TCP work? Right. And how do routers do what they do? Um, so, so, you know, I ended up, um, you know, leaving control data a couple of years later and, and ended up going back to the Minnesota Supercomputer Center where MRNet was located and ended up building, uh, networks at, at the Supercomputer Center, um, for the next three, four years, I think it was. Um, you know, the idea was that the, the center had these big, massive supercomputers, which is a whole other level of cool, right? Um, you know, massive supercomputers, 20 million here, 40 million there. There's a room full of those. And, you know, we had to connect those things together. And then also connect the center off to the center's customers, which were sometimes commercial, which were sometimes um, research, sometimes government, um, so that people around the country could take advantage of this very rare supercomputing research, uh, supercomputing resource, which was, you know, crazy supercomputers and things like that. Um, so it, it was a great exposure then to, you know, applications and high performance computing and high performance networking. And, you know, at the day, you know, in the day we were, were blown away by the power of a Cray 2 supercomputer, which is probably half as powerful as the iPhone you have sitting on your, on your desk right now, right? Yeah, even. Um, and we were, yeah, and, and blown away with, you know, the, the concept of, you know, 800 megabits per second of, of inter, uh, intercomputer network capacity is a thing called HIPPIE, HPPI, high performance parallel interface, which I think was, 64 wires or something like that. So, you know, you get 800 megabits out of them. We were just, our, our brains were just melted by that. And today, you know, we, we typically think about, you know, being able to do terabits and terabits and terabits of capacity in, uh, you know, one or one and three quarters inches of rack space, something like that. So it's been a, a startling transformation to see how uh, what, what once was powerful is now pedestrian. And it makes, you know, it gives me a lot of hope and a lot of excitement for what we'll see 30 years from now. So one of the, with your background, and you, you do have a variety of different entrepreneurial offshoots in your, um, in your career that I can see, which, which I love because I obviously I align with that in my, in my own journey through life. Um, how have you found, it, it's a fun conversation that I have with other entrepreneurs, but how have you found that the, and you spoke about it previously about how you try to inter interrelate disciplines, right? Yeah. How has that, can you think of an experience where that has overlaid um, and, or, you know, speak to maybe why that is such a valuable thing that, you know, specialization, although uh, is, is good. Um, it can lead to, you know, my humble belief is that it leads to very limiting frameworks and limiting vision. Um, so have you had a similar experience, you know, am I maybe speaking out of my ass here or, or do you think, um, there's something to that? You mean, so there's a cross pollination of technologies. Is that what you're, what you're asking? It's not just technology, right? So I, I fundamentally believe that yeah, technology into sports or, 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 okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it, it's an excellent question. And, and, and I'm not sure that any, any breathtaking, uh, example or, uh, story, uh, to tell comes to mind, but I mean, I, I think for me, you know, one, one of the realizations of my career, you know, and I, I, we've, we've talked about a lot of this right now. I, I had a lot of fun um, building that computer with my soldering iron in the basement, right? And 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 early on, the the fun for me was just the magic of the technology and look at the cool thing. 
and and I think over the years, right, and 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 definitely the place I've landed is, you know, technology is cool, but but only if you can use it for something, right? It's the practical application, and we kind of talked about this before. You know, what what is the practical application? So 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 some of the fun has been in in looking at a, at a piece of technology as a tool. And, and then trying to understand how I can use it in some other way or how I can integrate it in some other way. And uh, may, maybe some example of my own in my own history will come to mind here in a minute. But, you know, the, the obvious example is, again, the one that's sitting on your desk right now on your phone, whether it's an iPhone or an Android or whatever. You know, it, it's, it's really um, the integration of those technologies that makes the tool so powerful. Right. Um, you know, I remember back in the days of the first cell phones and, and a camera came out on one. I said, why would you want to why would you want a camera on your cell phone? I've got a camera over there from from Nikon or Canon or whatever it is. It's much better. You know, why would I want one on my on my camera and or excuse me, on my phone? And the resolution is hideous, you know, but it, it allows us to share in new ways. Right. It allows us to share images of ourselves or of objects or, or where we were, or what we were doing with other people. And, and it sparked innovation. Right. And it, it allowed us to bring in other technologies. To, to the point where we've got this massive integration in iPhones today, which is spectacular. It's sort of the best camera I own, which is ironic, right? But um, I, I, I think it's always finding those practical applications or, or integrating the technology into life. And, and even we were talking about snowboarding earlier, right? Well, you, you can look at snowboarding one of two ways, right? One is I'm going to go to this. I'm going to I'm going to go to the mountain today. I'm going to bring my snowboard. I'm going to go and have fun, and that is an awesome way to spend the day. It really, really is. Um, but one of the things I've learned, you know, having spent so much time on the mountain, is there, there's a right, there's a correct tool for the job. Right? So, so what I end up doing now is I, I wake up in the morning, I look at uh, what the weather had been for the last day, I look at the, what the weather is going to be like today. Uh, you, you start to form a picture in your head based on experience of what the snow conditions are going to be like. Not, not if there's going to be any, but you know, was it was it um, did it snow yesterday? Is it going to be fresh powder? Was it warm yesterday? Is the top going to be icy? Um, understanding what you think the snow is going to be, and then going to the garage, looking at the collection of snowboards, and saying, "All right, well, it's going to be an icy day, so I need that snowboard for morning when it's super icy and cold, and then I need that snowboard for the afternoon after the sun has baked the snow a little bit." And the snow is softer because I will be able to dig in and, and bring bringing the right tool for the job. So, you know, you don't want to bring a knife to a gunfight. Uh, you don't want to bring one snowboard to the mountain. You can, and you can have a great time. Um, but, you know, because, you know, maybe because I'm such a nerd, right? You know, I, I'm now at the phase where I bring several snowboards because I know that the conditions are going to change or today's conditions are, are different than yesterday's. So that, that's been the interesting piece, right? In, in, yeah. in understanding how to take technology, apply it to something like snowboarding, you know, and, and then how, to, how maybe do I design my own snowboard for that day that that, that guys at Burton haven't yet figured out, right? I think it's done everything. But still, um, but then even, you know, even in an industry way and what I do for, for career is, you know, how, how do I bring new tools, new ideas to, to solve problems that we have or maybe to, to bring them in and, and solve a problem we didn't know we had. And, and sometimes right. it's customer facing and sometimes it's just about um, making things better or cheaper or both. Yeah, the, the train of thought that I tend to always go down in and around that topic is I, I liken it to man versus wild where okay. the dude drops into the middle of nowhere uh, and is able to see things in his surroundings that I would definitely not be able to see or know about because I don't have the generalized experience uh, that he has and training that he has. So whereas he would be able to survive and get out, right. I would not, <laughs> not, not because of my lack of 
uh, physical fitness or ability, it's because he literally is able to make use of, as you were saying, the tools around him and integrate those tools in such a way that he can survive and thrive in certain situations. And when I talk to young entrepreneurs, that's a lot of what I I also try to get them to wrap their heads around is that specialization in your space is important. But if all you're doing every day is only looking at that one narrow field and that one narrow vision, you will um, preclude your learning and and knowledge base uh, to be able to bring in other areas of expertise and knowledge uh, to amplify what you're trying to do in that narrow space. And the most successful people, hands down, that I've met are not those who are specialists in one teeny tiny little area, uh, but they're those who have had that broad experience um, that can bring it all together. And so I, I appreciate your your background and your, your willingness to get off into different areas and explore because over and over again, I know you've probably been able to bring those experiences and that knowledge from one field into the field that you're in now. Yeah, I, 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 try, I try to, you know, try to every day, right? And, and the other thing about this is that, you know, everything we do is about people, right? You know, leadership is about people. Uh, solutions are about people. Uh, and, you know, there's a certain joy that I think you, you might be able to derive from uh, sitting in your garage and designing some cool new technology. But if, you know, it, it, if nobody uses it, if it doesn't solve a practical uh, problem, you know, uh, is it as good? I, I, don't, I don't know what, I don't, I don't know what my collective thoughts on that are, but for me, it's, it's always been about bringing it to market. But yeah, the, the man versus Wesson, that's, that's Bear, Bear Grylls, right? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I met him once. At, he, was, he was doing, uh, I forget where it was, but he, he came and gave the motivational speech, right? And, and you know, when he was up on stage, he was very much himself as he was in the, uh, in the TV series, which is very gregarious, very outgoing, very, I'm going to go jump out of this airplane into the Arctic tundra and I'm going to survive on eating snow for a week or whatever it was. And, and you know, I had to meet him afterwards, right? So I went and hunted him down backstage and, you know, really sweet guy and completely the opposite mm-hmm. in real life, right? Calm, just very shy. You know, when I, when I introduced myself, he almost looked at me like, oh boy, somebody's coming to introduce themselves to me. What do I do? Yeah. And it's it was really interesting. Yeah. Those personas. Um, the, the interesting for me is to be totally blunt. I find authenticity to be far more impactful and powerful. Um, and this is a totally random story, but I'll, I'll bring it back to topic. I was in Charlotte or I'm sorry, in Charleston, um, South Carolina with my wife just a few weeks ago. And we went on a walking tour and the guy who was giving the walking tour was awesome. He gave a great walking tour. It was badass, badass broads uh, in Charleston. And we went around and he talked about about a dozen different women who helped transform the landscape of, of Charleston, South Carolina. Great tour. And there were two points where he was telling a story where his eyes, you could tell that he was getting emotional, right? Okay. Telling the story about what was going on. And my wife and I both, after the tour, you know, phenomenal tour, we both started to get, you know, come with him into those emotions. But we both looked at each other and said, do you really, I I asked my wife, do you think that he was being authentic with his emotions there? Or do you think that, uh, you know, it was all for show? Uh, And what I, part of the, one of the many reasons why I love my wife is that she can pick that out so quickly, 
with people, if they're being authentic or not authentic. And she said, no, yeah, there's, she said, exactly. Uh, Empath. She, she said unequivocally, there's no way (laughs) that he, you know, it was clear that that was scripted, that he had done that over and over again. But the woman who recommended that I go on that tour with him straight up said that she was bawling and in tears um, going through the tour because of how emotional the guy was, which he was emotional. Right. And I find it interesting that um, some people can pick up on that and they understand that human emotion on that level and they can play off of it. Uh, But what's related here, I think, is for someone with your technological expertise and background. Right. Many of you know, and I'm I'm a geek as well, um, but it took me spending time knowing that I'm an introvert uh, and working on my extrovert. Uh, nature and self, uh, knowing that the obstacle was the way for me, right? Being afraid to go into a public sitting and sit and talk in front of a bunch of people was something that I wanted to become a master of and not uncomfortable with. So I just put myself in more and more of those situations. How did you go about doing that? Was that something you were just naturally inclined to do? Or did you also have to kind of force yourself through that process? You mean so? So my, migration or, or or being an introvert and pretending you're an extrovert—is that what you're saying? Uh, maybe you know, fake it till you make it, right? Because that's right. a lot of what I had to do, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I get it, and and I, I think we're 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 pretty much the same person in this regard, right? So I remember, oh, I don't know when this was, but there's a test called the Myers Briggs test, mm-hmm. and you take the test, and it rates you like every other test in the world, right? Every one of those corporate profile tests rates you into four sectors, and then there's some psychologist that tells you which one you're in. Um, but yeah, I remember taking the test for the first time, having never really thought about introvert versus extrovert at that point in my life, um, you know, just understanding who I was, I guess, but not having that label for it. And then taking the test and I come back as, you know, not hyper introverted, but, you know, to, to the, to the introverted side of the scale. And of course, you know, then I said, wait a minute, how did that happen? Right. Because I have friends and I can talk to people. How does that work? Why does this thing think, think I'm extroverted? And then some of the questions, you go back and then reread the questions and understand which ones contributed to the result. And I, the one that I always remember is when you go to a party, do you leave the party feeling excited and energized and wanting to go to an after party? <laughs> or do you leave the party early and go home and take a nap? Right. And the answer was, oh, I go home. I leave early and go home and take a nap. Right. So I can go to the party. I can have fun. I can meet people. I can talk to people, but it's expensive for me. It costs me uh, personal energy, I guess. Right. And I, I enjoy it. But at some point, you know, the gas tank is empty and I got to bail. And I, I even noticed that today I can I can go, you know, I, I can get up in front of a room of 10,000 people and give a talk. Right. And I can maybe be funny and maybe be entertaining. Um, but when I leave stage, I'm wiped out. Right. I can go to a party and have a great time and meet some new people. When I leave, I'm wiped out. So for me, it was getting my head around you know, that being an introvert versus an extrovert is where you get your energy. Apparently, I get my energy from sitting in my basement, building a computer with a soldering iron, and then taking some of that energy and sharing, you know, going to meet people to tell them how I did it, as opposed to you know going to parties and, and going to the after party and the after after party just to be around people. So that's just how I'm wired. And then with that knowledge, then I think I've been able to navigate, quite honestly, navigate life a lot better. Because my recollection of the Myers-Briggs test is something like, you know, 85% of people test as being an extrovert. So, you know, uh, makes me feel, I, it, it, it helps me become more comfortable, not that I'm an anomaly, but just how I fit into the grander scheme of humanity. Gotcha. 
So the other topic that I want to dig in with you, because as as we're talking here, and this is truly the first time that I think you and I have really dug in on any of this level, I feel like we could probably talk for a few hours. So, I, you know, I've got another 45 minutes that I, I've got with you here. So I want to dig into the specifics, um, one of which for our listeners is the understanding. Um, and this goes back to when I saw that you had background working with Sienna Corporation. Yep. Yep. Um, I had a friend of mine back in Santa Cruz that was working at Sienna. And when he started explaining to me the purpose of the equipment, the Sienna equipment, and that the major customers for them were the major international carriers, the AT&Ts, the CenturyLinks yep. and whatnot, pushing you know petabytes a second through yep. these networks. That was a, a very eye-opening um, evolution for, for me in understanding networks and how networks work. Um, and so it, the critical nature of those nodes, right? Those core nodes that are pulling and pushing that much traffic all over the world, of which there's only so many points that, the, that they exist. Um, can you just walk through that, that technology and how that has evolved over time? Because obviously back in the 80s, right? In the late 70s, yep. the thought of pushing petabytes a second over that type of a router was just unfathomable. Um, and yet we're seeing constant improvements in those technologies. But what, what was your experience like in the industry over the last few decades just watching this infrastructure and the capabilities of this infrastructure evolve over time? So you asked like 14 questions in there. Yeah, <laughs> let me see. I'm, let me I'm really see good can, at that. <laughs> yeah, let, let me see if I can go back and, t- and try to remember what they were and, and try to comment on them. So, so Sienna was you know, one of the highlights of my life, right? I mean, the people that the people there were just amazing. And I'm going to tell you a story about uh, part of the Sienna culture that I I, I, I found I, I I landed in quite by accident. I'll come back to that. But uh, you know, Sienna's an amazing company, amazing people. Um, while I was there, I worked for Steve Alexander. He's the CTO, and Steve is a, Steve's a great guy. I mean, Steve is one of the, to your point, one of the most authentic, genuine people I've ever met. And beyond that, he is just a rocket scientist. I mean, beyond rocket scientist, the stuff that goes on in that head. I, I would love to be a tenth as smart as Steve Alexander. He's just an amazing human being. But also, you know, when you have dinner with him. Now, you can talk about anything and you never really get it that he's a rocket scientist because he's just, he's just a great human being. So being able to work with Steve and, and the other people on that team for those years was really, really awesome. And, and, and we you know, helped you know, migrate from being focused on the core transport piece, which I'm going to talk about in a second, to being more of a, a portfolio solution, right? So it's, I'm going I'm to liken it to layers on the cake. You know, all of us wants the frosting, right? That's the thing that makes our iPhone work. At the end of the day, but deep down in the middle, someplace, you know, there's got to be this incredible capacity to to just get information pushed through. So, um, you know, reflecting on what I just said in the last couple of minutes, you know, Steve was one of the first guys to pioneer um, wavelength division multiplexing, which is the concept of you know taking this optical fiber that's been in the ground since the 1970s, and and rather than sending one single color of light across it you know understanding that you can send multiple colors of light simultaneously um, and, and being able to have then multiple information streams so the, the physics and, and i and I, I confess that i don't understand the analog physics uh let's get steve on the call next time and steve will explain it to you right but um the, the nuts and bolts of it is that there are certain frequencies of light 
that when multiplexed, you know, so multiplexed means you shot, you know, like, I think you have two flashlights. You have a green flashlight and you have a blue flashlight. And then you have a prism that allows you to shine those two flashlights and focus it down, down a fiber, right? There are certain frequencies of light that don't smash into each other while they're transiting down the fiber. There are frequencies of light that do smash into each other. And then with those frequencies that don't smash into each other, some are more efficient, right? Some can, some, um, uh, suffer less attenuation so they can go farther, right? So there's a very narrow, you know, uh, frequency set of frequencies of light that'll do that. But you know, Steve was one of the first guys to pioneer that technology. And that was sort of the evolution, right? Well, it's like, you know, it used to be that if I wanted to double my network capacity, I'd have to run a second wire. Uh, when this technology comes along, what I do is I, you know, leaning into what I said just a minute ago, I, I had a second flashlight. If you will. So I had a red one. Now I'm going to add a green one. Well, if I have a green one, can I add a blue one? Can I add a yellow one? Can I add an orange one? Can I add a turquoise one? Can I add a teal one? The answer is yes, right? So you can continue to add different colors, different frequencies of light, each of which then becomes its own separate data stream, if you will. And then the question becomes, how quickly, you know, if I've got those flashlights, how quickly can I turn them off and on to send the ones and zeros? So this is really you know, no different than smoke signals from the 1800s, right? You know, one puff of smoke means one thing, you know, a little pause and then another puff of smoke. You know, you can send messages by how many puffs of smoke you see and how often. This is really sending smoke signals in photons down a fiber to the other end. So you send ones and zeros. If light is on, it's a one. If the light is off, it's a zero. And you have to time that, right? So how many times can I turn off and on my flashlight in a second it describes how much how much information I can get on one of those single colors of light. So the two improvements over time are smashing more and more and more colors of light onto the fiber at the same time, um, and then increasing the number of times that you can turn off and on the flashlight. And I think you know it's, it's been a minute since I was at Sienna, and, and I know they continue to make strides forward. But I think the current line systems that they offer are you know do 800 gigabits per second per color which is, you know, 800 billion clicks of the flashlight off and on per second per car. And then uh, I'm going to get this wrong. And then the, and the marketing people at CNL will come and smack me if I do. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to recall the number of simultaneous colors of light they can do on a fiber, but it's you know, tens and tens and tens and tens, right? So it, when you get there, you know, you're talking about, you know, hundreds of terabytes per second going through a single fiber. And then, you know, how many fibers can I have? Um, and so that's really the backbone of the information systems we see all over the world, right? And, and as we each, as we each, um, you know, use more and more bandwidth, as we each all push our pictures onto Instagram, as um, police body cams are running all the time collecting information that needs to be stored, you know, that information's got to live someplace, right? It needs to go across a network someplace to live someplace. So, you know, uh, companies like Sienna are helping keep that core bandwidth um, not only available and reliable, but, you know, continue to improve the rate at which it is offered so that we as users can post more stuff to Instagram. Yep. And I want to make sure I'm hearing you correctly because I, I love having these conversations because I always learn new things. Yeah. Um, so am, am I correct in that, as you were talking, what's creating the the zero and one um, from a light standpoint, and probably even just a, even if we're using copper, right? It's either the charge or no charge. Yep. Um, so that flash of light is what is um, 
create I, for some reason in my head, I never put that together to make sense. Okay. Understanding fiber optics and understanding, you know, light traversing on, on multiple different um, frequencies, uh, yep. light frequencies, understood that concept, but never really understood that it was literally flashing on and off down through down that strand that that's what's creating um you know the the protocol and i guess what instantly went into my head was um uh morse code so yeah. it's it's effectively that light is being uh, the, the language right is the morse code through light uh traversing over that network at such a speed and across so many different wavelengths that's providing that much volume of you know what we call data Right. Yep. Um, and I, I guess I've always thought through it in the context of the um, the compute that is needed on each end to make sense of all of all of the information that's being processed. But I guess what help me understand and help our listeners understand in the process as that light is turning on and off. Something has to receive that. Right. And then make sense yeah, yeah. of that. Is that simply just a, a processor on the other end, or you know, how far down that rabbit hole can you go? I guess for a pseudo <laughs> how layman, much time do we right? have? Yeah, how right. Do we have? Um, <laughs> so, so, so let's let's think about think about it this way, right? Let's just say that I've got the alphabet. Let's keep it simple. I've got the alphabet letters A through Z, right? And 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 the way the computers encode this is an encoding scheme called ASCII. A S C I I. This is taking me back forty years. I think it's the American Standard Code for Information Interchange, right? So they decided that the letter A, and I'm going to get this wrong, right? But let's just say that the letter A, um, and say I'm, going to, say I'm going to use eight, eight ones and zeros in sequence, right, to represent a number or a letter. And let's just say that we've decided that the letter A is zero 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 one, right? And the letter B is zero 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 one zero, and then the letter C, and you kind of go on from there, right? Mm -hmm. So you make this binary number out of the alphabet A through Z. Right. So then the idea is, okay, if, I, if I'm going to send this, you know, just a fundamental level, what I've got to do is I've got to find a way to send zeros and ones. And it's exactly what you just said. So I'm going to send the letter A, which is, I'm getting this wrong. This is not what ASCII code is, right? It's not the actual representation. But no, I got example, you. example, right? Okay. So if the letter A is, you know, seven zeros and a one, then I've got to have, you know, I've got to send, I've got to have seven off periods where the, where the light is turned off for seven periods. And then the light turned on for one period. And so both ends have to agree on a couple things, right? They both have to agree what a period is right? mm -hmm. and how long does a period last, right? And, and this is one of the biggest problems in, in, in making these networks work, right? Is, you know, what happens, the, the systems require incredibly precise and accurate clocks. They have to be completely and fully synchronized mm -hmm. so that when I get zero, 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 seven zeros and a one, uh, at the other end, if that clock is off a little bit, it might think it was um, right. you know, six zeros and a one and then a zero, right? Because it, it came out of phase, right? And how long did the light take to propagate and the, the fiber in between and all that? So, so you know, incredibly precise clocks and encoding scheme where you say that this is an A and this is a B and that maps into ones and zeros. And then a way to send ones and zeros by by turning a light on. It, in this case, it's, a, it's an incredibly focused and precise laser um, to make a one and then doing nothing when it's a zero. But if there's six zeros that happen, you have to have the patience at the other end to realize it's like, nope, it's not that I didn't get anything. You know, the other end is intentionally sending me nothing. And that I interpret to mean a zero. 
right? And then I take those ones and zeros and I package them up. Uh, and I talked earlier about the layers of the cake, right? So the iPhone is the frosting, right? So there's there's a lot of equipment and a lot of stuff that happens after you get those ones and zeros and you reassemble them into the letter A and then you you package that and send it and you get, eventually get it up into the application so that an A appears in your browser or whatever it is, right? But you know that's that's the nuts and bolts. So it's you know incredibly precise clocks in a greed mechanism on how you you know, keep them aligned. Um, and then the understanding of exactly what you're sending and how you're sending it so that the ones and zeros can be turned back into uh, the CNN.com web, web page and, and that it all looks right and the letters are correct. So there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of specifications and standards in there that, that map all throughout, you know, all the way from how HTML works and how your screen, you know, how the LCD display on your laptop works. Um, all the way down to the ones and zeros. But the interesting piece is, you know, so much of that is we think of it as being digital. Um, you know, the, the the process that I just described is is completely analog um, at at the photonic layer. It's it's smoke signals, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's just pulses of light and how light travels through this this medium and what the refractive index is dictates how fast the light travels. Um, you know, it's it's a, it's a very very analog piece. And here, here's another thing I want you to think about. Um, if, if you if you close your eyes while I say this, you, you'll realize that it's true, right? If you if you go into your kitchen and you turn on the light, uh, you, you flip the switch and you realize that the lights don't actually just immediately come on at full intensity, right? They kind of ramp their way on. And, and and the greatest example I want you to think about this: in the last ten years, um, most turn indicators on cars these days are LEDs, and LEDs go from their off state they're on state very, very quickly. So I remember seeing one of my first LED turn signals on a luxury car 15 years ago. And the thing I noticed was that the light was immediately on as the flasher came on, then immediately turned off. It seemed very clear. Off, on was very crisp. You look at the car next to it, which used an old incandescent bulb. And what you saw was more like, well, I see the light is coming on. It's getting brighter. It's brightest. And then it, it slowly kind of turns itself off. So you notice that with your kitchen lights, if you have incandescent bulbs, right? Turn them on. There's a you can, you can see that they slowly ramp up to being on mm-hmm. all the way, and then slowly gotcha. ramp down to being off. In 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 computer land, that doesn't work, right? Because there's a, there's uh, it, it turns the the light form rather than a square tooth into a kind of a parabola, and then there's a lot of blur at the other end. You know, it's like was that really a one or was that a zero? I can't tell. So there's a, there's a million problems to solve at the analog layer. And and back to your original question, you asked 14 questions in there. Maybe I answered one of them. Uh, but, you know, th- this is part of the challenge of the gear that companies like CNN build is how do you then send, you know, tens and tens and tens and tens of colors of light, each of which is um, turning off and on a very precise laser 800 billion times a second, have that traverse the fiber and then understand what the hell you got at the other end, right? How, mm-hmm. do, you, how do you make that reliable so that when I send an A, I get an A? And, and the networks these days, you know, the equipment that does this, um, there's a thing called bit error rate. You know, how often can you have a single bit of those 800 billion per second that is faulty for some reason? And the bit error rate, you know, it's, it's been a minute since I looked at these numbers, but it's like 10, you know, 10 to the minus 38 or something like that is the allowable threshold. And the Siena guys are probably rolling their eyes saying Jeff got it wrong. But it's a, it's a very, 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 very small allowable number of bit errors per year not just per second, but per year. And, and so wow. it's, it, it's stunning technology. It, it really, really is. Yeah, it's, I, I knew it was stunning prior to the last 
10 minutes of, of you explaining this stuff. And now it's even more stunning. And that's part, honest to God, what I love about being in this industry is there's, you could just keep going and going and oh, going yeah, yeah. down these different rabbit holes and ne- it never ends. You could always learn more and it's always evolving and always changing. Um, and, and, and the key in that, let me just circle back around. So, so the, the key in all of this, right. And, and we're going to, you know, at some point we're going to talk about data centers, right. But right. You know, the, the key in all of this, right. Is reliability. Right, you know what? What we need as humanity right now, more than anything, and we need this sometimes with leadership and with our, with our relationships, but certainly with our technology, is is reliability, and, and this stuff just has to work. We have a zero tolerance for for stuff that doesn't work because our lives literally depend on it these days. Mm-hmm. Right, our lives depend upon our our technology infrastructure doing the right thing, and our financial lives depend on it. Right, you know, the banks making mistakes because there was a network error, just not something that we can allow. So making sure that these things not only work, but that they're reliable and bulletproof. Um, you know, the bulletproof part is probably 95% of the effort. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a daunting challenge. And then again, layering the cake so that all of these pieces work together, because what we didn't talk about in that process was, was any of the switches or the routers or the interfaces to the computers or the software on, on the, on the servers that takes the data and sticks it off to the spinning disk and, and the protocols for doing that or the, or the solid state disk or whatever it is. And, and storing it and keeping it and processing it and, and, and making the magic happen. You know, we're, we've barely scratched the surface of, of what, your, what your laptop will do or what your iPhone will do in terms of how it does it. Um, right. Which again, you know, um, I'll tell you this, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, of Star Trek, right? I'm, I'm not a Star Wars nerd. I'm a Star Trek nerd. And, you know, when I was a kid, I, was, I also was fascinated by watching Star Trek and the transporter and the universal translator and those things. And, Back in the day, you know, I, I didn't really see a path to how we get there. Um, but with just the evolution of these technologies and the reliability um, in the last 30 years, you know, I now see a path. I think we can get there. The transporter, I'm not so sure about. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, warp, warp drive, I hope we can get there because that would be super cool. But uh, the rest of it, you know, I can see how we get to these technologies. And it is, it's super exciting. And it's, it's fun to be, you know, I, I can't change the world, but I enjoy trying to change my little corner of it. And it's fun to to be a part of whatever I can how are I can make a contribution, I guess. So riddle me this because I, I know intuitively that the answer is no, because there's a variety of different companies like Sienna, right? They don't have a monopoly on, on that type of infrastructure, but due to the um, technological uh, differences between those major mainframes, the main core switching nodes, yep. routers that are, are deployed. How is it that like a Sienna router that's pushing a certain amount of traffic can speak to a, you know, whatever, right? I don't even know who the competitors are in that space. Yep. Um, how, how are they able to speak to each other? Is it because they're all operating off of the same, I guess, language? But if, if the technology yeah. within each device is unique, how would that not throw off, as you were saying, the specific timers and the specific receivers and and um uh yeah i guess that yeah. i get it i get it yeah so, so the answer is so it's been a minute right so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna pretend that i can represent uh what a how a sienna product line management or marketing person might answer right. this question so i apologize again, to my this the specifics my aren't yeah the specifics yeah. aren't as important as the like analogies are key <laughs> for, yeah, yeah, for yeah, me yeah. understanding so, all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm going to circle back about five minutes when I said, you know, remember all of these line systems, these transport systems, the WDM systems that we just talked about, they're analog. 
And, and I talked a lot about clock synchronization and I talked about the different colors of light and I talked about how those colors of light are mapped. And, and so for some of these pieces of equipment, um, I'm not going to mention any other company names of this, say Sienna and competitor X, right? For some of these analog transport WDM systems, they simply don't imp- interoperate. You need to bookend the solution. Now, that, that, that was the case when I was at Sienna. Maybe there's been some evolution there. Not sure. But generally speaking, there's, there's enough proprietary stuff, right? You know, the concepts are, are sort of universal, right? But there's enough proprietary pieces for how these protocols work and how the systems work that at least in the day when I was at Sienna, it's been a few years, um, you know, the line systems, the transport systems were not interoperable between Sienna and Competitor X. Um, but the way that, you know, interoperability is achieved because, you know, there's there's Juniper routers in the world, there's Cisco routers in the world, there's a billion kinds of Ethernet switches in the world, is that you, you move up to the next layer of the cake, right? And you say, well, um, you know, the output from this Sienna WDM system, I'm going to take all those ones and zeros that we just talked about, all the smoke signals, right? And I'm going to spit it out in Ethernet interface. And that can be 10 gigs, that can be 100 gigs, you know, that can be one gig, it can be whatever, but it's Ethernet. And Ethernet is a whole other standard. And my laptop sitting here on my desk has an Ethernet port on it. So I could plug my laptop into the Sienna WDM device and you know, put a laptop at the other end and they could talk to each other uh, across you know, 8,000 kilometers or 8 kilometers or 8 meters or whatever it is, right? Um, so Ethernet then becomes a standard that we can use and we do use for devices to interoperate with each other. Um, including switches and routers and all of the other things that get assembled. And of course, every system, as we just discussed, has Ethernet. And then, you know, of course, Wi-Fi is just a wireless form of Ethernet. Understood. Appreciate, appreciate, yeah, totally does. Appreciate you walking me through that. Let's let's now transition, and I'm going to use a, a key thing that you said earlier. Um, you know, with the different companies that you've worked with over the years, uh, I know you've kind of noticed commonality as to what what works and doesn't work within an organization. And you mentioned very early on about the team and the, the culture at DC Blocks that you've appreciated yep. and that you enjoy working with. Uh, and you also mentioned the same with Sienna. You know, what what is it within DC Blocks and that you saw within Sienna that made it unique and that made it uniquely successful? Wow, that's a lot. There's so many facets to that. It, it's hard to know where to dig in, right? Um, the, one of the things, I'm going to circle back even to something else we talked about. Um, introverts um, sometimes become hyper-introverted to the point where they, can, they, they might only be able to interface with, with their computer, right? And I've certainly worked with some of those people over time. Um, and and you, you have to know how to engage with them. You have to know what kind of things to give them, to stimulate them to, to producing excellence. You know, and I, I've worked with some folks over the years that were hyper introverted, you know, if, if you were walking down the hall and going north and they were coming down the hall going south and, and, and they could see that they were going to be near you and they might, you might say hello to them and you could see them trying to think about what they could say in response to hello and get a panicked look on their face. Right. Um, literally, I remember, I'm not going to mention the name, but I remember there was a guy that I worked with in the early nineties where if I would see, he'd see me coming down the hall and he just looked terrified. I don't think it was me. I don't think I'm particularly terrifying. <laughs> you can you can tell me what you think about that later, but um, but it was just just you know the social interaction piece, right? Um, you know, but you know, finding the right thing for him to do, you know, and 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 letting him do that so he could produce excellence, 
right, was, was, was the key. And that's one of my big takeaways over time, right, is learning about myself, learning introvert versus extrovert, learning all those other personality dynamics. Am I an, uh, do I do analysis or do I go by gut feel, right? Do I execute or do I just come up with the idea and want somebody else to do it? Right. Well, I go off and think about other things and maybe write some of them down. So, you know, cu- culture is a couple of pieces, right? It's, it's how we work together. It's how we share ideas. It's taking advantage of our, our, our unique strengths, recognizing that, um, you know, not everybody is going to appreciate the person that can't say hello to them in the hallway. And you know, what's wrong with that guy? Why doesn't he say hello to me? It's like, well, he's just not wired for it. Right. He or she's just not wired for it. So, you know, culture is about you know, taking advantage of our, our strengths as a team, and, and, and you know, making sure that we um, resolve, you know, our, I don't want to say resolve, but um, you know, whatever, whatever the, the weaknesses are that each of us has as a person. You know, I have my strengths, I have my weaknesses, right? So I, I, need, I need a team around me to, to, to jump in right? and, and, and solve for, for when you know, I might not be at a position of strength. And, and, and that's, that's an interesting you know, professional culture, but then there's also the social aspect to it. And I told you I was going to tell you a story uh, about, about culture at Siena when I was there, uh, and it, it's a fun one. And I, I tell the story a lot. I'll try to keep it brief. Right? I don't know if I can, but um, every year at Siena, we had a, uh, what's called a sales kickoff. It always happened at the beginning of the fiscal year, which was early November. It was always, and I think still is, but uh, always at a, at a hotel, a big resort hotel someplace in, in Florida. So, um, you know, all the salespeople come down, uh, mostly to drink and eat because it's kind of a reward week for them. But it's all under the guise of, hey, we're going to the kickoff so that we can have classes all day so, so that you can learn your sales force. You can learn about the technologies that are going to be available to you from the company next year because you got to sell them, blah, blah, blah. But mostly it was about you know drinking. Right. And um, I play the piano. Um, I play the drums and play the piano. And and all these big resort hotels have got, you know, pianos kind of at the end of every corridor and, you know, between classes during the day. So I was there to teach the classes or, or present and the sales folks were there to, to absorb. Um, you know, I would sit down at one of the pianos and play something just, you know, in the five minutes until the bell rang for the next, the next class to begin. Right. And at one point, um, you know, this is the prelude to the story, right? But at one point I, I was playing a song. I know what song it was. It was an Elton John song I was playing in. And there's this voice, behind me that starts singing the words to the song. And I turn around and I see this woman that I've never seen before, uh, never met before, right? And she's singing. And it's like Aretha Franklin is right there with me singing. So I'm like, holy crap, that's amazing, right? So it kind of became our thing that between classes, I would play on the piano. She would sometimes magically appear and sing along and that we would disappear. I ended up meeting her later in the week. Um, but the final night, um, the company would have the big final, big drinking event on the beach or whatever it was. And they always had a band. And the, uh, the band that they'd hired that year, you know, I was sitting having dinner with some of the other uh, leadership team, right? And, and the band was terrible, absolutely terrible. And, and I was just complaining about the band. And it's like, here's $20, take some lessons, you know? And, and I remember saying to somebody at the table, I said, you know, God, all week. So uh, Amanda was the, the singer who came in and sang behind me. I said, all week. Is that I'm playing the piano, like Amanda comes and starts singing and, and that voice, my God, it's amazing. You know, she's just an incredible voice and an incredible musician. I said, I bet you that I could find musicians in this company and we could put together a band and we could come and play the sales kickoff next year and do a hundred times better than that band that you hired for this thing. And it, it was myself and, and my good friend Chuck and, and we were there and Chuck says, yeah, that'd be great. You know, and we started... And at that point, Steve Alexander sitting next to me, and he, looks, he turns to me and he says, he says, 
if you can get that done, I will pay whatever it takes for equipment, for rehearsals, for whatever. Get that done. And we did, right? So the whole next year, as, as I was off uh, interfacing with people in the company, which was one of my primary, primary roles, at the end of every meeting, at the end of every talk, whatever, I'd say, hey, by the way, if anybody's a musician, come see me afterwards. We talk about it, right? And I told them, you know, the ideas were pulling together a band. Of course, some guys would say, yeah, I play the guitar. And then I tell them what we're going to do. And, and then they'd say, well, what I really meant was that I played guitar in high school and I haven't touched it since then. But uh, long, long story short, and, and I can make a long story longer, um, I did find uh, a handful. I think it was six or seven of us that first year. We did make a band. Everybody lived in a different city. We found a way to rehearse uh, from different cities right, and come together just before the show. And we played the sales kickoff the next year. And Sienna formed the company band. right, And they have played the sales kickoff every year since then. That was 2008. Um, they played the sales kickoff every year since then. The band has grown. The band is much more amazing now than it was when I was in it. Um, but that band ended up being the source of culture, one of the primary sources of culture. So I don't want to put words into their mouth, but it seemed to be a primary source of culture for the whole organization. And they'll play the shows every year to the degree that they even, I think, played the AT&T holiday party one year. And they won the Fortune Magazine Corporate Battle of the Bands, I think, in 2014 or 2015. Mm-hmm. And played at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? You know, who does that, right? Who who starts a band and gets to play at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Um, so, you know, it, it um, culture is an interesting thing, and sometimes it's it's lightning that strikes out of nowhere, and you didn't see it coming. Um, so that's also the fun, too, is, is understanding, you know, how do we work together as professionals to build really cool stuff, right? To, to put technologies together, to innovate, to cross-pollinate between different disciplines, to, to create new tools, um, but give them a practical application and then, you know, honestly, just have a hell of a lot of fun doing it, right? You know, I think while I did a lot of fun things at CNN, I met a lot of great people and did some cool technology, I got to be honest with you that the coolest thing I did there was be part of that band, right? Because mm-hmm. it was an amazing way to bring people together. And it all comes back around to that, right? You know, whether it's culture of DC blocks or culture of CNN or, or culture for the people who are listening to this podcast, right? You know, the world is about people. And, and, and how do we how do we interact with them? How do we make the, how do we make the world a better place with smiles and with with uh, corporate rock bands and with cool technology so that your um, you know you can order Uber Eats and sit home and, and uh, have your iPhone work for you? It's it's kind of an elaborate fabric. It's super exciting. So sorry, one one of my best friends years ago told me that I can take a long story and make it longer, and I think I just did that. But no, no, no. That was a great story. It's, it speaks specifically to what I was hoping you would speak to. Like, what what is it about a company that makes makes that magic happen in its culture? And I think companies like Rackspace, for example, have nailed that um, that culture, and they've really yeah, yeah. studied the the social psychology aspect of it, and have put yeah. different ritual practices into place within the organization that help build that community, yeah. reinforce that community. Uh, and whatnot. And that, as you were talking, you know, that band uh, and getting the community involved in that band, that yes. sense of ownership is one of the key ways that you can go about doing it. And then the ritual of doing that every year, right? And getting new people involved yep. every year builds that and then reinforces right. that. So how is it that you went from, you know, DC Blocks, from what I can tell, is the first data center company that you've worked with in your career. What got you interested in taking that path into the data center world? I know you've been on the periphery of it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah a, lot, a, lot, a lot of uh, corollary and, and associated um, 
endeavors over time, right? Um, but you know, the, the thing the thing that's changed, and, and and the thing that you know we take a lot of pride in at DC Blocks is is changing the paradigm of of what a data center is, right? So you know, one of the, one of the phrases that I use these days is, um, you know, DC Blocks is not your grandfather's data center, and and, and no disrespect. To, to any of the data centers that are out there because it, a lot of them have been around for, for decades, right? And, and the hallmark is, you know, reliability and a place for equipment to live and keep it cold and, and make sure the power is always on. Um, but, you know, in, in, the previous, in, in the previous generation, if you will, you know, connectivity um, was something left to the carriers. And, and, and I love the carriers, right? You know, without at and and without Zao and without those guys, you know, I'll say dramatically life itself would be impossible, right? But uh, it was always you know, for the customer, uh, they would, they would, whoever they were, whether it's Facebook, you know, Facebook's not a good example because they build their own data centers, but, you know, big company X, you know, Citibank, right? Does the Citibank, if they're going to bring their equipment and put it in a, a, a data center, somebody else's data center, you know, a retail space or wholesale space, um, you know, Citibank would need to go to AT&T or to whoever it's going to be to get the connectivity because, you know, Citibank headquarters, I think it's in New York, but wherever it is, you know, City, the, the people at Citibank headquarters need to have access to that equipment. So the onus was on Citibank, if you, you know, to, to continue that example and that customer or potential customer, um, it was up to them to find the space, get their equipment moved into it, call AT&T, coordinate the connectivity, and that was all on them. And, and you know, that requires a set of, of disciplines and skills and knowledge and, and you know, buying telecom um, and having it be reliable. And we talked about reliability a lot in this whole thing, right? But, you know, how many times does your internet go out at home, you know, per day, per month, per year, right? Um, you know, how many times would you allow your data center connectivity to go away? And you know, what does reliability mean to you? How, how, how important is it that you're up 100% of the time? So for somebody who's a, a novice or a neophyte who might not understand how AT&T builds networks or how CenturyLink builds networks or how Zale builds network or Spectrum or Cogent or Comcast or any of those guys, uh, they might go in and buy something and maybe it's not a protected service. Maybe they buy two services because they want to protect it, but maybe both of those services run through the same switch or the same router or they go through the same fiber and the backhoe cuts the fiber and both of them are down. So so the paradigm shift for, for DC blocks, right, was to to put right what once went wrong and, and to homogenize the, the connectivity and co-location experience, along with other things like, you know, cloud and storage and, and whatnot, um, to be able to ourselves offer that solution turnkey. So as you pointed out, you know, most of my experience and career, if not all of it prior to that, other than some brief time that I spent doing information security, um, was focused around connectivity and networking and switches and routers. And I even, you know, helped design and build switches and routers at various companies over time, including at Siena. Um, you know, it was, it was being able to say, all right, the new data center, the next generation data center like DC Blocks, we, we realized <clears throat> that if a customer is going to give us their children, this is why I say it, right? So your, your key critical IT technology, your servers, your routers, your storage, if you're going to give us your children, right, we have to do two things, right? We have to keep them cold and safe and dry. So we've got to keep the temperature down so they stay cool. We keep them safe with uh, security that's always on. And, you know, got to have a, a, a bunker, right, so that when the, the hurricane or the storm passes through, um, not only does the building not get wiped out, but that the power always stays on. So keep them cold and safe and dry. Once you've given up your children and they're cold, cold and safe and dry, you, wh- whoever that is, they still need to have um, unfettered, reliable, high bandwidth, low latency access to it 
from everywhere in the world. And, you know, and, and the one thing that the coronavirus um, has taught us, right, is that we now need to be able to access everything from everywhere. We're all working at home. Most of us are working at home at least, right? Everybody's remote. Most everybody's remote. This new age of remote humanism tells us that we have to be able to access everything from everywhere, right? So uh, when in the old, in your grandfather's data center, when you had to get the connectivity yourself, maybe you did it right, maybe you didn't. But the thing we focus on at DC Blocks is getting the connectivity right and offering that to the customer. So we have... And what, in what way are you doing it, though, it, or is DC Blocks doing it that's uniquely different than what you're calling the grandfather grandfather's data yeah. center? So, so, so I'll, give an, I'll give an example. And, you know, there's, there's you know, how, how, how can you use... I'm, I'm going I'm to take a step back and say, you know, can, can you use a screwdriver to pound in a nail? Yes, you can, right? So there's, there's tools in the world and then there's applications in the world. So there's a million applications for what I'm about to describe, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a great example. Um, one of the things that we just talked about was reliability and resilience. And, and what we've done in, in, in the DC Blocks ecosystem is by virtue of providing our own connectivity solution where we own and operate the network that interconnects not only all of our data centers, but but all the interesting touch points for uh, broader connectivity, like 56 Marietta in Atlanta, right, which is like the epicenter of connectivity in the Southeast United States. So there's all these other touch points where you kind of connect to the world. We, we, we mesh the data centers together with a connectivity so that they really all look like one data center that happens to be located in multiple cities. And an application for this is, say we've got Citibank. Right. So say I've got I've got five data centers in the DC blocks ecosystem. Right. And I've got Citibank and Citibank wants to have um, reliability so they can never be without their stuff. Well, if you give me your 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 Citibank IT infrastructure, let's say it's a thousand devices, a thousand racks. Right. And I put one fifth of it in the first data center, one fifth of it in the data second center, uh, one fifth in the third, one fifth in the fourth and one fifth in the fifth. Right. Those data centers are on different power grids. They're in different seismic zones. They're in different storm paths. Um, one of the examples I always use is, you know, what if a meteor falls from the sky and wipes out the data center? Well, that might happen to one of them, but it's not going to happen to all of them. So if if I'm continue to use this example customer, right, if Citibank puts their stuff in all of those data centers, right, and I connect them together. So that all of that stuff looks like it is not only in one spot, but is living in the Citibank in the basement, right? Then they have what they need, right? They have a brilliant disaster prevention strategy because they sprinkled their stuff around, right? They still have reliable access to it. And there's additional resilience beyond what you'd expect because of the way it is interconnected and the way it is, again, you know, in different seismic zones, different storm zones, different everything zones. So the chances of losing all of it or losing a critical amount of it so that you're effectively down, um, you know, I don't want to say goes to zero because I'm not sure that you can make, I'm not sure that anything is 100% certain in, in the universe, right? But it gets so, so much closer to being 100% reliable that it's a strong value proposition. So that's, that's the interesting piece, right? We effectively have one data center that happens to be located in multiple cities because of the way we connect them together using all this technology that we've been talking about for the last hour. So your, your job on a day-to-day basis, and I think it's important and I, I like asking the different folks that come through for interviews yeah. so that people can understand, like what is a day in the life for you uh, in the capacity that you, that you're in? Because in, in, 
here, here's some of the thoughts that come through, used to come through my head. <laughs> uh, and, and I know it comes through some listeners heads is once you set this stuff up, it's kind of a set it and quasi forget it, right? That's not a full-time job. So you don't need to be all day, every day configuring routers because it's, you know, they, it's not on you a lot of the time, but once this infrastructure is kind of set up, what is the ongoing? I know you're on the strategy mm-hmm. side, but unless you have dozens of data centers coming online every quarter. Yep. Um, so to that end, you know, what are you spending your time doing and thinking through and, and acting out on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Good, good question. Um, so the, uh, you, you already kind of hit the two heads of the, of the answer, right? But there's a strategic component. And then there's a tactical component. So everything I just talked about was more of a strategic component, right? Which is, what does a solution do, right? You can have all this cool stuff, all these cool, you know, ones and zeros and all these WDM systems and all this cool stuff. But what, is, what does it do? So I gave you, I gave you an example application for, I call it disaster prevention, right? So that you can, you can leverage the broader ecosystem. Um, so that's strategic. You know, tactically, um, think about it this way, right? You know, occasionally everybody's car gets a flat tire, occasionally everybody's car, you know, something goes wrong, you got to bring it in for service. So all this technology is sophisticated and it's it's less and less fussy over time, right? You know, the more something's been out in the market, the the more bulletproof it gets operationally, but stuff still breaks. You know, machines are still all just machines. The machines still break. And uh, so there's, you know, I have a team, uh, brilliant people who, who, who take care of the, 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 proper care and feeding, I guess, if you will, of, of all the switches and routers and make sure that they continue to work. And, and the other part of this is, um, you know, we, we rely on um, dark fiber in the ground between the points in the ecosystem that I just mentioned to, to, you know, get all those ones and zeros to the other end, like we talked about earlier, right? So there is all, a whole fleet of backhoes out in the world, right? <laughs> and guys digging, digging trenches and digging wells and boring new stuff. I mean, we, it, it goes in spurts and we've had a good couple of weeks here, but you know, there has rarely been a week that goes by that we don't have a fiber cut or two um, someplace in our not such, not, not so huge ecosystem. At this point, we're still, you know, a handful of points of presence uh, and growing, but still a handful. Um, so we have fiber cuts all the time. And then, you know, the question always is what happened? Whose fault was it? What do we do to fix it? What do we do to make sure it didn't, um, it doesn't happen again? And was there any impact to our customers? And of course, we take, you know, great pains and, and great care to make sure that, um, you know, we can have fiber cuts and we can have equipment failures and we can have unexpected events happen. And, and none of that impacts the customers because of, of uh, brilliant reliability and, and, and bulletproof, you know, architecture. So that when something fails, there's always a backup, at least one backup for it. Everything we do is, is always, we say, concurrently maintainable, which means there's at least two of everything so that if I need to take one down for maintenance, the other one picks up the load, or if one of something catches on fire and explodes or our dude in the backhoe uh, cuts a fiber, you know, we, we still have a workaround path. But the other question, or the other answer, excuse me, is, you know, I'll just say it in one word, more. Uh, people always want more. They want more ports. They want more throughput. They want more capacity. So, you know, you, you, you don't, well, well, everybody would like to have their first car be uh, a Ferrari, um, you know, because of economics and how much they cost, you know, while we have a powerful network and, and the lowest, the, the slowest connection anywhere in the network is a hundred gigs. Um, you know, we bump into those limits once in a while and we have to add another hundred gigs and another hundred gigs. So there's scale, there's reliability, 
There's just dealing with backhoe and fiber cuts. And then there's planning for the future, you know, and as we add new, new sites and, and new customers, you know, what do we have to amend in, a, in an otherwise scalable and modular architecture? What do we have to amend or what do we have to improve um, to, to um, make it work and to continue to have it scale? And then, of course, you know, pesky customers, right? They, they have a lot of questions, right? So I spend half my time thinking about um, you know, everything I just said, which is, you know, what's the strategic vision? How do we realize it? How do we make it scale? What's the tactical? What broke today? You know, what do we have to upgrade today? What piece failed? What switch failed? Um, but on the other side of this, you know, being one of my other roles is, is as an interface to customers um, for helping them understand why everything I just described works and works the, works the right way so that they have confidence um, that we're a credible solution for these things because it is still um, relatively unusual um, for, for a company like DC Blocks to do what it does so well, which is build the bunker in the ground out of concrete where your equipment is cold and safe and dry and have the networking expertise to be able to deliver this connectivity you know, without having to go to AT&T, without having to go to CenturyLink um, in some cases. Right, to, to deliver it. So yeah, sitting down with the customer and, and candidly um, making them comfortable, uh, demonstrating credibility that this is not just uh, switches we bought at Best Buy that we cobbled together and called out a network that is truly carrier grade. That is something that, um, that AT&T or British Telecom or Telefonica or, or Telstra would deploy. And in fact, you, know, you, you, might, you might suspect and you'd be correct that a lot of the gear that we use in the network is uh, Sienna gear because, you know, I, I have intimate visibility into the quality and the operation of that gear, given my time at Sienna and the stuff just works. Right. So, um, you know, demonstrating credibility that we have built a carrier grade infrastructure and that indeed they can give us their children. They can give us that key critical infrastructure that just can't go down ever Right. And, and then we're going to we're going to take care of it for them the way that they would do if it was in their well, better than they can do it if it's in their basement, which is why they give it to us. But it's going to yep. be reliable. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And to be clear, from a network perspective, your onus is on helping customers get between the facilities themselves. Are you involved in helping coach customers on how they get even from their office to yeah, the data yeah. center? Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Thanks for asking that. You know, there's, there's, there's so much going on, right. And it's, I get, I get on a story and like I said, I can sometimes take a long story and make it longer, but, but, you know, again, the, 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 the goal, right. Is to I'll say it again, have the customer give us their children, put it in our data center, cold and safe and dry, give them that access to it. And then make sure that that equipment has access to the outside galaxy, right. It has to be internet connected. It has to be able to talk to whatever it needs to talk to, whether it's the remote office in Poughkeepsie or whether it's just the broader internet or whatever it is. So we continue to expand how we think about participating in that entire connectivity ecosystem, including the last mile to the customers. Um, and, and we can't do it everywhere because, you know, I don't, I don't have a fiber plant uh, that runs to Little Rock, Arkansas. I don't have my own, right? So if I've got a customer in Little Rock, DC Blocks is not, a, we're not AT&T, right? We're not CenturyLink. We're not there. We can't, um, we can't bridge that gap and, and, and provide that network ourselves. So we're going to call on one of the big carriers to do that. And we obviously you know, can't do this alone, right? We, we, we embrace and encourage and welcome all carriers in their facility. They are a critically important part of our ecosystem. Always have been, always will be. So we love them in the building. We need them in the building. Um, so we're carrier neutral. We welcome them in. We need them to be there. 
for a variety of reasons, um, either because it's something we can't do or because it's a customer's preference or because together you know, we're, we're stronger than we were as individuals, right? But um, the other piece of this is in certain markets, we will partner with local providers to deliver a last mile solution. And, and the, the example that keeps popping up over and over again is, you know, all, we're primarily in what we call underserved markets in the Southeast, which means, you know, Birmingham, Alabama, Chattanooga, Tennessee, you know, cities, you're, you're familiar with the name, but you, you know, the typical person might not be able to find them on a map, right? Um, so underserved markets, um, each of those markets has a utility provider, right? And traditionally utility providers provide power and gas and water, and they have a great business and they're reliable and they're wherever they are. But, you know, what I always say, which I think is true, it may not be, but I think, you know, the most valuable asset of a utility provider is that they own right of way, right? They own the path where their pipes or their power lines or whatever it is, where those things run, or they own the poles and they own the space between the poles. So they own the right of way. Each one of those uh, almost universally has taken advantage of that asset of right of way and has uh, decided to be a network player somehow. So they snake fiber. And some of those folks will uh, then actually buy switches and routers and provide network service. Some of them will just have the fiber and they will, will sell it to somebody who wants to have a photonic path between A and B in the market, uh, like we were talking about earlier with the, with the smoke signals and the ones and zeros, right? So um, we will partner with those folks in the local markets to... Um, buy lit service from them if they offer it, or if they don't, um, we will, um, you know, lease fiber from them, light the city, if you will, ourselves, and then offer, you know, f- find a way to actually get fiber run to the actual physical presence of the customer. So that's the latter is what we're doing in, in Huntsville, Alabama right now. Huntsville Utilities, um, great bunch of people at Huntsville Utilities. I love working with them. Um, they have a dark fiber footprint. Um, and I think they might have it on their website, even if you, if you go look, but basically the whole town, the whole Metro Huntsville area has Huntsville utilities, dark fiber run to basically every curb, every residence, every, everything. And I think Google fiber is actually uh, providing service on that infrastructure. So, you know, we're in the process of, of leasing fiber from Huntsville utilities and lighting it ourselves, having six or seven points of presence in the city where we'll have switch gear. And then, you know, getting the, the word is laterals, right? So a, a fiber run from what you'd call a core ring infrastructure out to a specific customer, wherever they are um, in the city, and then providing that last mile ourselves. And we can do that, um, you know, up to 100 gigs per second um, for, in some cases, a fraction of the cost of what uh, you, you would pay a carrier, or maybe the carrier can't even do it at 100 gigs in certain ways. So, so we're, we continuously evolve how we think about the solution. You know, we're not a replacement for carriers. Um, we never will be. We need them in our ecosystem. We, we love them in our ecosystem. They can do things we can't do and will never do. And quite honestly, we don't want to do. But in certain other places, we can leverage our expertise, leverage the equipment that we have um, to provide, you know, unique solutions. So that's another part of the strategy is, you know, each, each market's a little different. Huntsville Utilities with Stark Fiber, how do we light that? Um, as we're we're moving into the next markets, we're we're talking to the players there, and and it's always just a, it always just different enough so that you have to kind of take a couple of days and just sit someplace quietly and think 
about how you're going to get it done and then do it. So I appreciate the question. Thanks for that. So I have one other question just so that our listeners can get a better understanding of DC blocks. Um, yep. I've been working with you guys for many, many years uh, in a variety of different capacities and know Benny over on your team very well and used to work with Kurt. Um, Kurt actually used to work with me over out of uh, QTS when he was, when he okay. was there back in the day. I love um, me some Kurt Stover. Yeah. And uh, know, know your team well. And I know there's a, a big plan to grow and expand beyond the four facilities that you guys have today. Where is DC Blocks in that process? Um, and what are the newer locations coming down the pipe in the near future? And to be clear, the four existing today are Atlanta, Georgia, Birmingham, Alabama, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Huntsville, Alabama. Um, what, what new ones are popping up here? Yeah, I, I think we're still at the phase where I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Um, yeah. So I don't think I'm going to do that. I, okay. I think, honestly, just in the last week, and I'm, I'm not going to get ahead of myself here. Um, I think in the last week, we've had some, some, there's been some, some actions taken to secure one site, but I don't even want to mention what it is. Here's, here's what I will say. If you go to dcblocks.com, uh, and don't ask me which buttons to click or which tabs to click, but someplace in there, there is a map. Um, and a, a list of, of candidate cities in the southeast, and 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 I don't I don't know if it's arranged by order of priority. I don't think it is. Um, but, but those are those are the candidates, and I, I think we're still at the point where you know there's obviously um, interesting competitive possibilities uh, that that want us to kind of stay a little bit stealthy until we're actually ready to make an announcement. So uh, gotcha. I, 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 I'm dying to tell you what I think they are, but I, I don't think that I can do that. Yeah, the, the whole reason why I ask is in that list, which I've, I've been watching for a while, there's about 16, yep. 17 cities, right? Yep. Which to get 16, 17 cities lit and up and running all at once is an impossibility <laughs> for, for, for almost anybody. Um, yep. So, you know, I'm curious which ones are popping up soon, but, um, but I appreciate your, your candor there. Um, for the last question I have, well, I have two last questions for you. Uh, that I'd love to get your insight on. One is you mentioned um, one of the folks that you were working with. Uh, his name was, I wrote it down here, Steve Alexander. Yeah. Um, I assume that when you were there, he served as in, the, in a mentor capacity, right? Well, so Steve is CTO and, and I just report, I reported to Steve, you know, my responsibility at the time. Um, you know, most, most of my background prior to Sienna was in routers and switches. And, and Sieta was um, in, in a, uh, the process of expanding, you know, I think the phrase we used at the time, expanding into adjacent spaces. So earlier we went through kind of a deep dive on uh, multiple colors of light and, uh, and smoke signals and all that, right? So that's, that was the, the primary uh, first product for Sienna. And they wanted to, to grow into adjacent spaces with, with switches and other pieces. So that was my role to bring in some data expertise into the company and, gotcha. and to grow that expertise organically or by acquisition. So I reported to Steve in that capacity. And then of course, you know, I got to just work with some, some stunningly brilliant people and, and just absorb all the, uh, all the amazing, all the amazing that was around me. Where I was going with that is, um, through your experience and the different folks that you've worked with, is there a nugget of information that you received that really kind of touched you deep down inside and kind of helped you reframe or rethink or um, really focus differently in your career path as a, as a working professional or even just a human? Um, yeah. Can you remember any of those, those bits of wisdom that we could share with, with our listeners? Balance. Balance in everything. Um, you know, and we talked about this already, right? Which was, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm a geek, right? I, I love knowing, you know, how things work. When I, when I buy something new, I, I'm inclined to take it home and take it apart, which is kind of scary. Uh, but, you know, there, there's balance in everything and, and in the, the space you know, that I work and that we work, you know, making sure that our, our tools have a practical application, that we don't invent something for the sake of inventing it, that we don't make it overly complicated, right? What, what's the quote? Um, perfection has been achieved not when there's nothing left to add, but when there's nothing left to take away, right? So, you know, wh- what's the tool look like and, and how do we get done and how do we balance that against what people actually need? You know, maybe I can invent a cool tool and someday a problem will come along for it, but but not so much. But but balancing that, balancing people, understanding introverts versus extroverts, right? Understanding um, people who execute versus people who imagine, uh, understanding people who who analyze versus, um, you know, decide with their gut, right? And those people are people we work with, um, not only in, in, in our professions, right, but also just on the street and in the supermarket and in the line, six feet away, of course, right, but in the line at the supermarket. And, and so, um, you know, that's, that's the thing that I, I continue to try to strive for in my life is, is you know, I, I have strong opinions, and I really do. And you've heard, <laughs> you may have heard one or two of them today. Right. But I have strong opinions, but, you know, recognizing, you know, balance is the important thing for us professionally. And, and especially, you know, I, I think we can all agree without getting into details that uh, the political environment today in the world is is really complicated and it's really impassioned and, and it's really polarized and, and, and trying to find balance in that so that we can we can find a way to to help eliminate that polarity or do what we can to, to find a way where we can all you know, get what we need, not necessarily maybe always what we want. And, and, and maybe that's it. So I, I continuously try to find a strive, strive to find balance in my life and, and try to bring that forward. And, you know, some days I'm more successful than others. Yeah. So you're human. So what you're telling me is that you're human. Uh, um, some people would disagree with that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say for the, for the record for this podcast, that yes, I'm human. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, and one thing that I've been preaching on consistently through all of this is the need for social discourse and not I'm right. You're wrong. Everything's black and white. You're an asshole or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, But let's help me, you know, seek to understand rather than to be understood. You may be impassioned with your opinion, but let's try to understand where someone is coming from. Um, Here's here's another one. Here's another one too that, that connects to that fully, you know, words matter. Right. So, you know, one, yeah. of, one of the things I noticed, and, and we've all we've all done this. Right. How many times have you received a text message from somebody who's really close to you for with whom you have you know, no current dispute? Right. And they send you a text message and you read the text message and you're offended by what it says. Right. And, and, and it's not because they meant something offensive. It's not because they're mad at you, but maybe maybe Siri autocorrected the word the wrong way. Right. Or maybe. But, you know, words words matter. Right. And, and I think a lot of the, the polarity these days, um, you know, it, it's, it's impossible. It's impossible to walk down the street. It's impossible to engage with people these days without having a conversation about politics because it's, it's so in your face. And, and initially, you know, those conversations can be contentious. Um, but, you know, as you start to sit down and think about your values and, and what you're really what you're really about and what you want, right, is that you, you, know, you want to be healthy. You want to be alive. You want to um, have a job. You want to make money so that you can have a place to live and food on the table so that you can care for the people that you love and the people who love you. Right. And, and everybody wants that. We all want that. Right. Uh, it's just that sometimes the words we use 
which are obviously in some cases motivated by political candidates or, or, or brought into the lexicon, right, by political candidates, tend to be divisive, right? The words at face value are divisive. So, so words matter. And, and, and I, 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 you know, that's another thing I strive to do every day. Some days I'm more successful than others is to, is to find the right words, to think about what I'm saying, to make sure that I, I communicate what I'm really trying to say rather than uh, candidly being lazy and using a soundbite and, and having that be that incendiary text that I might have sent to somebody and now they're mad at me. Why, Jeff, why did you say that? Why are you being an ass? Um, so miscommunication, you know, trying to find ways to bridge commun- miscommunication in this world seems like something that, that, I would like us all to be better at, including myself. Yeah. Amen. Um, the other question I have for you has to do with what is a new, something new that has come into your awareness over maybe a couple of days or months um, that has made you, you know, stop and think or, you know, shocked you, awed you, whatever it may be uh, that our listeners may may also be shocked and odd by and maybe want to learn more about? That is a good question. That is a good question. I'm not sure that I have. Let me think about this for a second. Is, there, is this going to be in the, like, in the realm of technology, something that pertains to data centers? It could be, or just like it could be anything. anything. It could be totally anything. So I'll, I'll get, for me, for example, I am, um, I love Dune, the, the book Dune okay. and the whole yeah. entire series, Frank Herbert. I, I've probably read the first book 20 some odd times. I've read the second book probably 10 to 15 times. The third book probably about five to 10 times. And the fourth, you know, going down the line. I've been rereading the entire series and I'm now on the fourth book. And I find every single time I read the book, I walk away with a new nuggets of knowledge and information and new context as to how things are going on in the world today. If I could, you know, if someone asked me today who I could sit down with, Frank Herbert would be the guy. Um, okay. And so for me, one of the, one of the key things that I'm really, that I've taken away is just the understanding of time and how thousands of years uh, have gone by before and what thousands of years will likely go on past me. And despite the fact that the last six some odd months of our lives, right. Of 2020 have seemed yeah. like decades, Right. I literally feel like I'm decades older just being in 2020 than any of the prior years before. Um, You know, the the last couple of months have felt like decades. Some years go by that feel like weeks. You can look back on, you know, 2025 or 2005 for me went by super quick. Um, So the concept of time and understanding that though we are so impassioned right now, being so committed to what's going on in the world and caring and, um, how is that relative to time, right? We yep. care so much now thinking that the world's going to end in so many different ways. And yet we've probably as a species thought the world was going to end. I can't even count how many times, right? An yeah, infinite yeah, yeah. number of times. Yeah. So with that perspective, it's allowed me to take a few deep breaths and step back and realize that we are just in a point of time relative to the space-time continuum universal yep. that is going to come and go. And things will yeah. change. Things will evolve in whatever way they will. Um, and it's really trying to understand what is my role in this reality at this time to affect whatever change I can and really yeah. understanding, yeah. 
it's helped me narrow down the field of what it is that I can control and should control yeah. and spend my time and effort on. So in that capacity for me, you know, rereading that the series and I'm still in the middle of about to finish the fourth book um, has helped me really solidify that for me and step back and get some patience in this whole process. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So thanks for that. That was awesome. I, I've got two thoughts uh, and I'm, I'm going to connect into what you said. Um, but the first one is uh, for me, uh, I go back, I'm, I've, re- I've restarted watching the reimagined Battlestar Galactica. Hmm. Um, I don't know if did you, did you watch that when it was, uh, I, I haven't, I heard of it. I've, it's been oh, on my list. <laughs> okay. Here you go. This is, this is my, this is my, my demand and not just a request for you. You okay. need to go, uh, Battlestar Galactica. So there was an original version of the seventies. Right. It's kind of can't, it was pretty campy, pretty cheesy. It was like, um, you know, ABC television's response to the popularity of star Wars. And it was pretty dreadful, but, um, the, the framework for what was happening in Battlestar Galactica from the seventies, they carried it forward and it was about, um, Folks who you know, lived far, far away, someplace else in the galaxy, they invented machines who basically got smart and had an uprising and destroyed most of the humans. And then and the rest of their lives are spent running away from the machines to, to, find, to find salvation. I'll leave it at that. Um, so it's, it's a sci-fi backdrop, right? Um, but there's, it's connected to the reality of, you know, how smart is AI going to get? Is it eventually going to come and kick our ass? Things like that. But uh, what, what I learned from the show in, in watching it is that it's set against it's set against um, the backdrop of, of science fiction, but there's an interesting episode, for example, where, um, you know, they're, so they're out in space. It's a spacefaring civilization, right? And the only people that are left are the ones that happen to kind of be in their spaceships when their planets were nuked by the, by the, by the robots, right? Um, they found this, this prison ship, right, that had, I forget what it was, but like a couple hundred um, inmates that had been sentenced to death, Right. And they were going someplace to be executed. But now, since there's only like 50,000 humans left in the universe, can we afford to still kill these people? So, so the show really turns around and focuses on people and stories and, and the loss of your civilization and how you cope with grieving over the loss of your entire family and everything you've known and your planet is destroyed. And here's these people that are murderers, but can we kill them now? Be, you know, can we execute them now? Because there's not enough of us and we need a gene pool. The whole series is really about that. And, and I, I love watching it. There's some episodes that are better than others. And, and the last season got a little crazy, <laughs> but the first two seasons, I think are some of the best television ever, but so go watch that. That's my, that's my task for you. Get back to me when you're done. Um, but which, uh, the, which version is that the 2004, 2004. Yeah. The reimagined, um, the reimagined version, 2004 to 2008. I think there's four, yes. there's four seasons. Really, really good. Watch the pilot episode. If you're not hooked by the end of the pilot episode, you and I can't be friends. <laughs> okay. All right. All so right. so the other thing, the other thing that popped in my head during this, so, so sorry for that, that distraction. You can edit that one out if you like. No, it's good. Um, but where I was going with this, I said this to somebody the other day, and, and it, it, talked, it, it connects to what you were saying about time and about importance and, and why are we here. So more of a philosophical bent. Um, so as we, as we discussed, when we, the very first words out of my mouth was like, yeah, I'm, I'm old, I'm older than dirt, right? And so I remember back when I was a kid, the, the specter of death, right, was um, nuclear holocaust. We're going to go to war with the Soviet Union, World War III, everything's going to be over. You know, we, we all sort of thought that you know the planet would end because of of you know a few people pushing the buttons on the nuclear arsenal because of some dispute between America and, and the Soviet Union. Um and then you know that kind of went away ish, you know, with the fall of the Berlin Wall and whatnot. But and one of the things I said the other day 
um, as we look at the, the, the instability, if you will, of our current geopolitical environment and all the crazy things that are happening in addition to, you know, coronavirus, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of instability and a lot of it's kind of scary. You kind of look at, at some more leaders and say, wow, you know, you could push, you, you've got the, uh, you know, you've got the nuclear arsenal at your fingertips. I'm not sure how I feel about that, right? Um, so one of the things that I think about is, you know, how did we get here, right? You know, we kind of thought that nuclear weapons were going to be the end, but, you know, I think a lot of the instability in the planet right now is caused by social media. I think it's caused by either manipulation of social media or just by loud voices on social media, which, which tend to, you know, based upon what we said before, words matter. You know, I could irritate you with a text message. People post things on Facebook, right? They post things on social media, on Twitter, right? That are incendiary, that, that, that are either intentionally incendiary or maybe accidentally incendiary. So, you know, I, I said the other day, you know, I always thought that, you know, the planet was going to be destroyed by nuclear war. And now I think the planet's going to be destroyed by Facebook. And I don't mean that literally, but I think that there's a lot of, a lot of instability that has been introduced to our lives by the loud anonymous voice that many people can have on social media. And it's, it's a little terrifying. And, and, and so day to day, you know, I, 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 I try not to do any of it, but I'm, I'm, I'm really worried. I'm really worried because I, I think that social media and the way that it can fuel I'll just I'll stop at instability because I don't want to get into any, any particular topic, right? But the way it can fuel instability, um, I, I can see a way that that gets wildly out of hand, yep. and and it, and, it, and it scares me. So I guess maybe that's I, I was hoping to give you a more optimistic, positive. No, 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 that's the thing. Well, you're not alone in that thought, and it, the the key. I guess soundbite that you said uh, that I resonated with was soundbites are lazy, right? So the yeah. soundbite from that soundbite is the soundbites are lazy, which they totally are. And that's what social media just encourages uh, is soundbites. And without context, perspective, without transparency, uh, and to your point about anonymity, anonymity is, is okay in certain contexts. But when you are trying to communicate with someone and have a authentic uh, communication, it's impossible to do that when you're anonymous um, and it yeah. breeds yeah. social, you know, discord or, or social um, anxiety. And, yeah. and so I'm, I'm straight on that. Well, um, for those who might want to get a hold of you or talk to you or who have questions for you, what is the easiest way for someone to, to get a hold of you, Jeff? Yeah, super easy, Jeff at dcblocks.com. And DC Blocks is dcblox.com, and we'll have uh, this information in the show notes for those who want to go to ilovedatacenters.com to check it out. And the last question I have for you, Jeff, which I ask all of my uh, my guests, is do you oh. love data centers? I love data centers more than life itself. <laughs> well, I appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much. I hope this isn't the last time that, that we talk to one another. Is all mine. I appreciate your time today and, and uh, the patience of all your listen, listeners in, in, in sitting through my very long stories. Well, uh, appreciate you. Appreciate all that you do and keep at it, man. And I hope uh, you're enjoying, you can sit back and enjoy the rest of the day at your, uh, your lake house. I appreciate you. Have an awesome day. Peace. 
So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week, and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.